Well, everybody looks good today. All right, we're, we're live. Welcome to Scale Up Heroes. We're up to episode 18 every Monday. You can find us here at Scale Up Heroes. We bring you the best minds with the best real life experiences when it comes to scaling up businesses. These are the heroes that took on the difficult odds. They're living to tell the tale. And to all of our viewers, we invite you to visit our website, scaleupacademy.io. Today, we're talking about scaling up engineering. And so we welcome our viewers, our guests to the show. I want to introduce today's moderator. He is Paulo Almeida. He's a VP of engineering at, uh, and I'm going to butcher this. You told me what it was. Help me, Paulo. What is it? Pomelo Fashion. There you go. And he's coming to us from Bangkok. I'm in Dallas, Texas, and I'm I'm not bilingual. English is a, is a tough language even for me. So welcome, Paulo, and the rest of our guests. I'll let you take it over. Okay, thank you, Randy. Um, hi, everyone. I guess we can start with a quick introduction of our own companies and what our responsibilities and more or less the size of our team. Um, I can start with myself. So Pomelo Fashion is a vertically integrated fast fashion company that uses omni-channel. Uh, what that means is that creates a seamless experience between the offline and the online, mainly using technology and all the customer experience and customer behavior that comes from behind it. So what I'm mainly responsible right now in my company is uh, responsible for the product development, strategy, roadmap, also the technology vision. There is a cloud infrastructure that needs to be supervised, a retail infrastructure for our high-tech shops. And there's also an IT help desk slash support for the entire company that is more or less around 300 people. Currently, the engineering team is composed of 25 to 30 people uh, among several uh, pieces between product management, UX, plenty of developers, and a couple of IT uh, help desk slash support. Um, we're currently between Series B and Series C. So it's one of those uh, stages where uh, you, you kill or you get killed. So everything is on board and the commitment has to be 110%. So um, leaving you a little bit on that note, I guess we can start with uh, Paolo. Paolo, you wanna share us? Uh... Uh, hi, yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Paolo, um, I'm, the, uh, I'm the CDO at Pusher. And what Pusher does is we provide real-time collaboration and communication APIs for web and mobile developers. Um, for example, our, our core product is a PubSub message bus uh, for, for uh, web and mobile applications. Um, examples of our use cases include, for example, New York Times used us to power this kind of nice little emoji tracker of emotions during the presidential debate in US. Uh, we've got other customers like Financial Times using us for livestock. Um, we also have several other uh, products that, nearing, that are nearing uh, general availability. So Beams is our push notification service. Um, ChatKit is our chat solution. They should soon be ready for general use uh, for production uh, workloads. Um, what I do at the company is I'm responsible for identifying and promoting technologies that help us build better products and build them faster. Um, that's pretty much what I've been doing uh, recently. Um, the, uh, the company is around 70 people now, around 30 in the engineering team. Um, we've got around three product teams, three small platform teams that are building the common foundations for the new products. Um, we announced the Series A founding, uh, funding in April. 
uh, from Balderton Capital. So we're growing, um, we'll be hiring, uh, we're launching a new office in San Francisco. So yeah, things are, things are accelerating and we're, we're trying to get uh, some new products out. Okay, that sounds uh, exciting. Um, Alexei, do you want to go next? Yeah, sure. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Alexei, or Alexei, as Paul said. Uh, I'm the director of engineering at Uplift. Uplift is a mobile advertising company. So what we do, we lift advertisers up and uh, yeah, basically fulfill all our advertisement needs in terms of mobile marketing. Uplift was founded in 2012. Uh, we are, I think, around 200 people at the moment. Our tech team in total comprise of 30 to 40 uh, people right now. We are based in two locations, Berlin and Bangalore. I'm responsible for a team that uh, has the attributes all around the products that has the attribute of so-called real-time. Uh, yeah, if you can think of it as a performance uh, marketing tracking, uh, it's uh, various data pipelines, which is connected to data collection, aggregation, and distribution to internal and external clients. I'm also responsible for driving the whole um, cloud infrastructure uh, that drives those products. Yeah, and our uh, flagship product is uh, DataLift 360. This is something that gives advertisers a unified solution for all the app advertising needs. That's pretty much it. All right, that's that's not that's not small. Um, Eduardo, do you want to go next? Maybe you want to unmute yourself. <laughs> now, yeah. Um, I'm Eduardo. I'm a CEO at Backlink. I've been working here at Packlink uh, for four years now. So Packlink is a shipping platform that helps uh, businesses and uh, users alike to ship. Uh, you know, shipping is a complex, uh, complex business. So we, we take advantage of technology to make uh, this uh, the, easier, the easier experience possible. Uh, so we focus in uh, B2C and uh, B2B. And in the case of the V2V, not only on e-commerces, but also on um, some offline commerces that, they, that need to ship. Uh, we are Madrid-based. Um, we are on Series C currently. Uh, we did break-even on last December on Christmas peak. Uh, well, we have a really big uh, base of e-commerces and that helps to ease the, uh, the seasonality. Um, so we are we are doing really really nice uh, during summer, which is good. Uh, in terms of um, the engineering team, uh, it's composed uh, of fourteen uh, people, uh, back end, front end, QA operations, and the company is composed of uh, around ninety people, uh, including um, sales, uh, customer care, and any, everything in between. Okay, that sounds uh, sounds interesting. So um, maybe Elner, do you want to give us uh, your thoughts on this? Sure. Hi guys. Um, 
well, I'm CTO and co-founder of Realize. Um, we develop uh, a technology, first of all, that is uh, that is enabling computers to read human emotions from their face. Um, so any device with a camera, we're able to capture the, the changes of the facial expressions and um, analyze them as reactions towards what people are seeing on screen. Uh, we have developed a product around this technology as well. Um, that's a marketing product, uh, marketing research product. Uh, basically, we're helping our clients to analyze engagement with their video content, emotional and attention engagement. Usually, these are video ads that, that we're testing. Uh, we can test people anywhere in the world. Uh, it's, it's fully scalable, fully online with any, any device that has a camera uh, built in. Um, uh, all tech is uh, developed in-house, including the computer vision parts. So we have a very diverse uh, tech team. Uh, we have uh, web engineers uh, that come with testers and product, uh, uh, product, uh, product people. Uh, we also have um, an infrastructure uh, support team. Uh, and we do have an extensive R&D team as well, which there are two types of people or three types of people. There are data engineers, there are data scientists, and there are computer vision uh, researchers as well. Um, all in all, the company is around 60 people today, uh, 35 of which are in tech. Um, I'm responsible for building uh, the, the tech teams, driving the strategy, um, and then helping in, in various aspects of the technology of the company, uh, focusing at different times of life of company, uh, depending on where the needs are. So currently, my main focus in, is in R&D, but I do oversee our uh, cloud infrastructure development uh, aspects of the team as well. We've just raised uh, 16.2 million um, as a A round or A plus round. Um, and um, uh, basically uh, featured as uh, Deloitte Fast uh, 50 companies last year as well. All going ver very well, uh, scaling and definitely have uh, challenges in, in that and lots of uh, stories to share. That's for me. Sounds interesting. Uh, Martin, do you want to tell us a little bit about you? Gladly. So I'm the VP of engineering at Compare Euro Group. Uh, basically, we are a comparison site that help uh, consumers compare various products such as credit cards, uh, mortgages, uh, broadband connections or phone providers and, and help them find the, the best offer so they, they can save money. Uh, our tech team is based in Lisbon, but we have offices in five locations in Europe. Um, but we're hiring quite actively here in Lisbon at the moment, looking for five roles still. Um, we, are, we raised a, a Series A last year of uh, 20 million. So also quite a big round for a European company. Uh, my responsibilities are to, to build the tech team here. Uh, drive the technology vision, make sure that we have a scalable platform going forward and have a vision that is long-term rather than just short-term. Okay, Martin, uh, uh, Joshua, that leaves us, leave us with you. Perfect. Um, yeah, I'm Joshua. I'm a co-founder and CTO at Super Awesome. 
we are the biggest kid tech company in the world. So we work with the likes of Hasbro, NBC Universal, Disney, and so on. And we power a lot of the digital ecosystem for kids. Basically, the technology platforms that sit behind the scenes that keep kids safe online. Uh, we are headquartered in London. Uh, we've got offices in New York, LA, uh, Chicago, Singapore, Bangkok. So decent global footprint, a little over 140 people. Uh, with what 15 open roles in engineering alone at the moment, so uh, growing, growing rapidly still. Uh, we are at our B stage. Well, I mean, we closed B last year, um, and overall, I'm basically responsible to to try and make sure that we we spend some time to prepare and structure our engineering team to cope with the accelerated growth that we're going through overall. Make sure that we're kind of one step. Uh, ahead of uh, the growing pains that we inevitably experience every single day and at least try to preempt uh, many of them. So overall, that's me. Okay. This, um, I see a lot of, a lot of companies with uh, location bases in multiple cities. Um, I guess that's a sign of expansion. So I guess it's a little bit of time to go to what we actually um, like to talk about it. So um, should we use microservices or should we go to a monolithic system? Um, I can give you a, uh, a little bit of my point of view and then I'll let someone else start. Uh, so we're currently using like a system of three layers. So what we did, we divided between products, services and microservices. Uh, each one of those three layers have a different set of rules being that the microservice always have the rule of not speaking with each other by interfaces and never touching each other databases, while the services are a little bit more unclear in what they do, because many times connecting and doing integrations with multiple systems outside of our ecosystem that we built uh, can be quite tricky. So it's rarely or rarely ever possible to actually do something very simplistic that will only fit one. One thing has to be a little bit of a Swiss army knife that connects to the outside world. Um, I don't know who has a stronger opinion about that. Uh, why don't we start with uh, uh, Joshua, since you were the last one, why don't you give us your opinion on this one? Cool, um, I'll start then. Uh, for me, everything is about agility and, and, and speed of, of delivery, really. If, if there's anything that, that at least I've, I think I've learned over the last five years is that what you think you end up delivering is nowhere near what actually is the end product that you're going to be building. So the speed at which you can iterate over your product and the speed at which you can roll it out and get it in front of customers to get feedback as quickly as possible is very, very important. Um, so I, I mean, we're, we're structured around microservices and, and the speed at which you can iterate over each and every one of them uh, individually is I think one of the, the biggest strong points. The, the second point that comes with it is that I'm a strong believer in Conway's law, which is just the fact that your your organization your organizational structure will uh, uh, will mirror your actual uh, application structure and the other way around, right? So the if you want to um, allow the um, sorry, if you want to allow real ownership and you want to allow people to properly own the various products that they have, uh, they need to be able to iterate very quickly and they need to have very clearly delineated rules of responsibility. And again, uh, microservices from that perspective allows you a lot more flexibility to figure out how you end up um, producing uh, the, the various increments that you go through. 
so I'd say for those for those two reasons or three reasons really, um, I would ear towards the side of microservices. Okay, I think uh, that kind of took the words out of our mouth a little bit. Uh, Eduardo, why don't you share us a little bit of your point of view on this one? Um, sure. So, <clears throat> um, really liked Shoshua's uh, Shoshua's uh, uh, opinion. Uh, from my perspective, um, uh, the monolithic system is uh, easier uh, to develop to find market fit. So probably at first, uh, you'd like to go to a monolith uh, so you can deploy and put in front of your clients uh, as quick as possible, like kind of an MVP. Uh, but then uh, if, you, if you grow and, then, and you need to scale and you need to iterate quickly, then microservices uh, probably are, are a good choice. Uh, of course, it really depends on, on, on the experience of, of the team and all the accidental complexity that you will get with, with microservices. Um, here at Packing, we use microservices since um, late 2015. Uh, we were really early adopters of the term. I think um, Shane Lewis and uh, Martin Fowler coined it around uh, 2014. So we went uh, through all the hard lessons of microservices uh, that we are now uh, seeing at conferences and, and blog posts and everything. Um, so yeah, from my side, if you are starting, if you need to find market fit, don't, don't find accidental complexity, go for the easiest, easiest thing. It's probably a monolith, a quick Rails app or whatever. And, um, and start having clients and generating, uh, you know, uh, some some revenue, and later you can uh, scale while decoupling your monolith and starting doing there. Are lots of uh, great uh, ways of um, working with the monoliths while you migrate to to microservices uh, if you need, if your team is big or you really need um, uh, to iterate that fast. I so that, that's an excellent advice. I, I, I kind of agree with that. Unless you have a, a very strong team of uh, eight to 12 engineers from day one that uh, you've trusted and worked before and you know you can create that kind of complexity, um, microservices is very hard to start. Um, Alexa, do you want to give us, you guys feel free to join and intervene at any point. Um, Alexa, do you want to give us your point of view on this? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, I hear what Joshua and uh, probably the rest of you guys are feeling, right? Eduardo. Recently. Eduardo. Eduardo, yeah. Eduardo? Eduardo. <laughs> Great. Uh, so, my point is that uh, I've been through several uh, examples, basically, and I've been going through a huge model to microservice architecture, been going through microservice from the very beginning, full on. So, the observation at the moment is that it really depends, right? And you cannot just say, well, if you're in the, in the beginning of your journey, then you should definitely go for monolith, right? It really depends on what is the end goal for you and what uh, is the load, right? And what is the uh, speed that you want to go and what you see as the next upcoming feature or set of features or the products you're going to push, uh, you know, in the nearest couple of months after you gain traction, right? Uh, regarding the Conway's law, obviously this is something that uh, organizations and uh, engineer departments or tech departments, if you will, 
uh, are affected by. Uh, what I mean by that is that you have squats or any kind of units that are in, in intended uh, for delivery of features, right? Then inevitably they form their own pieces of the infrastructure or uh, your architecture, right? But at some point it can become a chaotic and you would gain a liquidative weight in terms of technical debt. So one way to address that would be to actually have a vision which uh, could be driven by a person responsible such as a set of principal architects or one architect depending on your team size and the uh, company setup and basically build teams around that vision, technological vision as well. So I think that way you kind of can uh, be on the safe side in terms of uh, introducing something that is inevitably going to be thrown in the trash, which is unfortunate sometimes, but also with microservices, this is very easy to do. And as long as your architecture and basically your setting allows that, right? So it kind of takes a lot of discipline and a lot of trust in each other. And this is something that uh, companies I think should exercise Um, yeah, uh, I mean, a lot to think about here. Um, Elner, do you wanna do you wanna give us your take on this? Sure, um, I do. I do share uh, the sentiment of the previous speakers. So, uh, basically, the 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 path that we went through is that we started with a monolith, and uh, we're now trying to uh, migrate to microservices, but we're at the very, very beginning of that. Um, and uh, we have experience of uh, all the troubles um, that the monolith creates. And I, um, first of all, I, I, I do want to confirm that um, when, you know, very often when you're starting, you're starting with a small group of people and you're starting with something that you don't know uh, if it has a market fit. And that was our case. And so for us, Monolith was definitely uh, the, the best choice to go forward with. It allowed us to quickly iterate and we've iterated a lot through all different uh, features of the product, uh, you know, and the whole product itself. Uh, and we pivoted as well uh, several times. So um, this is where Monolith really helps because everything is in one place, data is in one place. Um, it's easy to try out new things very quickly. Um, but as uh, the Monolith grows, uh, your uh, technical teams grow. Um, you, you basically cannot have everyone in the team know everything about the monolith. So you have to kind of start splitting teams into their uh, specializations. And when you split uh, the organization into technical teams, the monolith doesn't split uh, that well with it. And, and this is where the trouble starts because uh, teams start having a lot of interdependencies and then when they want to make any changes, for example, to the database, um, uh, then they have to coordinate with each other. And then uh, suddenly you being very agile and fast and quickly trying things, uh, you become very slow and sluggish and, um, and you know, everyone has to agree with each other and people are arguing why a certain change cannot be made because it will make other things uh, blow up, um, and and that creates a lot of uh, a lot of delays as well. So, 
Um, and on that sense, just a quick question, since yeah. uh, I think that goes into very much into also what what, what part is the biggest challenging of transition from microservice into I, I think, from I monolithic think. into microservice? And did you saw that point? Did you understood that the monolithic was going to grow? And was there a point where you said, if I don't change it now, I know that it's going to bite me in the ass in the next three months? And nevertheless, did you still let it bite in the ass? Yeah, I think I think we do still, um, and we still haven't made that you know extremely firm decision. The, the uh, I think important point to decide is when when uh, you uh, are settled with your product, you see the scale up coming, um, and you know that okay, you will need that uh, uh, organizational scale up as well, and you need to have an architecture that scales with it. And the other uh, important decision point is uh, with the monolith, you have the technical depth growing, and beyond a certain stage, um, it's better. You know, I, you know, once you pass a certain point, there's basically no way to do a migration from a monolith where you're taking it apart piece by piece. You almost have to build a second version of uh, of your product in parallel and, and make an investment into that. Um, so I think it, it is a very fine balance that you have to find there and it's not easy to do because uh, the product is obviously pushing for new features as fast as possible uh, and migrating from monolith uh, to microservices, depending on how late you are in that stage, is going to take a lot of resources. And then it becomes a, a challenge there to try to agree with everyone in the company how you're balancing that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree it more. Um, I, I think uh, <clears throat> at Pomelo, we took the risky decision, or I took the risky decision at some point, even when people didn't really saw the technical path and how it was going to grow, but they had an understanding, enough understanding that that was a thing and that was unstoppable unless we did something. So we did that transition, but we decided not to go full microservice because that remembers me a little bit of the sort of Netflix that went from a monolithic system to a microservice, 500 microservices. That was a gigantic pain in the ass just to create all of those interfaces and communicate with each other. Um, Powell, do you want to give us your take on this? We've been letting you, we've been muting you for too long. Yeah, sure. Um, actually, at Pusher, uh, we have both a monolithic system and a fairly service-oriented system running in a parallel. Um, the original channels product is is the monolith. Um, it it runs as it's deployed as separate services. It you know it scales well. It can handle hundreds of billion messages uh, per month. So it's it's all good. Uh, we, we're happy with that part. But we couldn't really build new features because with monoliths, the, the big the biggest problem in my opinion is there are lots of implicit dependencies in the code. And if you try, if you're trying to untangle those dependencies, for example, if you want to change the authentication system, how do you kind of split that part out if you don't really know what depends on it? It's it's a very long process and, and very dangerous if you're if you're um, you know going through a code base that's used by hundreds of thousands of developers, uh, you know, in in, in production. So for me, that's the biggest danger, and that's why we set out to build a second platform um, for our new products, which is designed in a way 
um, that you know has lots of more explicit dependencies which model um, how you know how we want the company to to look like um, in the future. Um, as Joshua mentioned, the, the Conway law, we did the kind of inverse way, uh, the, the inverse Conway law. So uh, in the Conway law, the, the kind of the companies uh, replicate uh, their structures uh, in, in their systems architecture. We did the other way around. We built a system in a way that we wanted the company to look like because we had just a few people working on it. And since then, as the, as the products were going, as we were adding more things on the platform, we kind of started building teams around that structure, which has served us uh, quite nicely. And we were able to reduce this kind of uncertainty of breaking out certain parts or, or modifying them or giving even individual teams uh, freedom to, you know, to, to build little monoliths inside that platform if they, you know, cared more about iteration speed early. So yeah, that's pretty much my take on, on the problem. I see. Uh, Martin, do you want to give us your point of view? Sure. So, first of all, I recognize a lot of what people have been talking about. Uh, we have been in a very interesting transition phase at the moment where, due to some organizational history, we started out having uh, essentially four teams with a separate governance of their piece of code. Um, and all of that, those pieces had the implicit dependencies that were very hard to know about. So it was sort of like we had four services that together formed one monolith. And we faced the issue that when we started to deploy things, various pieces would break around the platform that would be seemingly unconnected, but for some reason depended on the piece of code that was changed. So right now we are kind of in the process of switching from the, the four separate service into a proper microservice architecture where we have uh, proper encapsulation and, and proper interfaces that are well-defined. Uh, and this has really brought with a lot of complications because we're taking a, an overly complex system and trying to make that less complex. Uh, which means we had a lot of configuration hell going on uh, and we've really tried to kind of run into all the roadblocks that come with microservices one after another. So it's been a frustrating experience, but on the flip side, we have seen that we now have more solid deploys so that when we deploy something, we don't suddenly have the platform crashing. And um, what do you guys think? Is there a way uh, probably for some of you more experienced ones. Um, is there actually a way to measure how many microservices is going to exist? We're, we're always talking about a startup, so we're not talking about a massive company that has product managements and analysts and product ma and project managers and assistants that are needed to create all of that documentation. We're talking about in the startup, what is a realistic system? So, uh, Martin, you were talking about that you had four services, correct? More or less seamlessly integrated that created a monolithic. So, you, you have any idea where you're going to end in terms of microservices? No idea, really, no. Uh, we're, we're sort of analyzing the platform. Um, and then when we see something that we can logically split out, uh, we, we try and take that piece of code and and move it up and and we try not uh, to do it. sorry 
So ad hoc. You're creating microservices ad hoc, but always following the very clear rule of encapsulating the databases and only communicating through interfaces. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I wonder, is that is that a, like a thumb rule that needs to be absolutely followed? Because I found that they can be services that in the hands of very experienced people or very intelligent people, especially developers and senior developers, um, can actually be little Swiss army knives. Because then that leads us to another thing. Microservices is beautiful, but then you have the product management, the entire sprint and the entire planification that comes from behind it. And how do you aggregate things into sprints? Is it by people or is it by comp? Is it by product? Is it by microservice? You're gonna have a hundred sprints. You're gonna have one sprint with one architect. Uh, what do you guys think? Uh, Alex, how do you? What's your take on this one? I, I'm trying to parse for myself what what was the question exactly, but I'm gonna try anyway. So basically, you're talking about how we're gonna. What is the way of uh, keeping sanity and the number of variants of the microservices um, and kind of keep it under a certain level of control so that we don't shoot ourselves in the foot in the end? Is that correct? Yeah, that's a great summary. That's uh, okay. Not that I really knew about the question that I was going, but I was wondering about the complexity and where we're going to get into numbers. And led, that led me to think about the planification. Yeah. How so things work together. Yeah, uh, I think it very well uh, will repeat what I said, but uh, in, in my first uh, reply. But I'm gonna go a bit, a little bit more into details and share my uh, experiences from the past and what we are doing here in Uplift right now. So, in order to avoid that, you can apply certain uh, either processes or you can uh, start measuring your. Uh, project by different KPIs such as uh, I don't know code complexity on the uh, unit tests and so on and so forth. But essentially, there should be a certain level of discipline, forced or not not forced, uh, in a way of having a trust between the teams or in the team. But it's very hard to do so in the very beginning. For example, if you start uh, microservices full on, you're going to go through a long path of aligning on many, many different things that are the attributes, inevitable attributes of the uh, modern uh, distributed systems, such as the way you do logging, the uh, way you send the messages, the way you trace requests throughout the system. Uh, all these apply certain structures or conventions. So what we did uh, in Applive by uh, before starting a new project recently, by the way, so we came up with a set of guidelines that were going with and we worked on this for quite a while about a couple of weeks and we were it's all in github so it's a great uh, setup for uh suggestion changes and having discussion around that and you know you, you, you can basically just uh, trace uh, the reasoning behind a particular statement and you know understand what, what led to that um, yeah, but then once you are on the rails, so to speak, right? Once your project starts off and it starts generating revenue and you have traffic, then any change that kind of doesn't fit those guidelines, right? That uh, will, will raise the question: how 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 well does it fit, right? So what uh, can be done? And what we do is we have certain. Uh, 
uh, meeting every Monday. It's not compulsory, but when we have agenda for that, then we talk about technical things such as something that disrupts our architecture or something that doesn't fit our vision. So we call it the committee and the committee is moderated by um, designated architect and all the concerns are addressed and we have a discussion uh, and when we uh, make a decision during the committee. So we also uh, take it already in, right? So we try to address uh, any impediment that can uh, be imposed by this change. And if it does fit in the next sprint, right? And, or in the next two two days or three days, because we work on Kanban at the moment, uh, yeah, then, then we just take it on. If it doesn't, then most probably we're gonna go in a, uh, in a way of starting a proof of concept, right? So basically a person who raises the concern, maybe they will form a kind of meta team uh, for the time being of uh, proving this particular change. Uh, interest is that um, putting some measurement, measurements uh, in place and basically proving that it's viable change. So more or less it's a collaborative uh, responsibility, right? But we have designated uh, architect for uh, helping us understand uh, where we're going and why. Um, Paolo, you're, you're muted at the moment. Yes, sorry. Uh, did any of you guys face any kind of those challenges while migrating from monolithic to microservices in terms of the planification was getting left behind, either because of too much complexity over it or uh, just yeah. lack of proper thinking? Yeah, well, um, I mean, we, we are on microservices here at Tackling, but uh, the monolith is still alive and kicking. Uh, so we basically been two years already into migrating and the monolith is still there and making money. Uh, so you cannot uh, kill it. Um, you have to um, little by little uh, move all the business logic that has evolved into there and into all that, um, uh, all that um, uh, technical depth you have. So. For us, we set up a certain kind of uh, rules uh, for, uh, for creating microservices. And um, basically it's, um, it's uh, trying to find the right responsibility uh, before creating a new microservice. It's that, do you really need a new microservice or this feature fits within the responsibility of existing ones? Uh, we currently have around 20 something, 30 something uh, microservices. Um, I expect that we will go to probably around 60 because we, we, there is a part of the system that uh, we need to, uh, that got um, uh, a lot of responsibilities that needs to be split up. So we use a, a fixed set of, um, of, uh, as, uh, of uh, instructions, uh, whether a new feature has, it's uh, within existing microservices or has to be a new one. And we also use um, the architecture decision records technique uh, to let you know these um, uh, conversations that happen when you are taking a, a break or something. So we, everything is on GitHub also, so you can check you know um, decisions taken by the by the team and informal conversations or formal ones. Uh, but we we did. Uh, make uh, some mistakes uh, while migrating to microservices. We have a couple of microservices which have 
uh, too much responsibility or a responsibility which is not the one that uh, um, was originally thought because then, you know, system evolves, the company evolves, and then you find out, oh, I have this microservices called A that is not really doing A, it's doing B and C. So probably I need to move this to B and create C. Um, so even if for a small team, because um, backlink engineering team is small for having uh, microservices, uh, but uh, then um, a feature probably might not involve that many microservices, a cup maybe at one, two. Um, we, our architecture is uh, event-oriented, so basically uh, it's quite decoupled in that, in that sense. So we are able to uh, create a new feature by affecting only the front-end and maybe one microservice or a front-end or two microservices at, um, at best. Um, so I think one of the uh, great difficulties of microservices apart from the technical ones are finding the right scope for that new service application, call it, call it whatever, that piece, that new code that's going to be on your platform doing uh, and reacting to events, which are the responsibilities, how, how much is going to, to grow. So for example, you have an invoicing service. Uh, okay, so when people is paying, who, who has to send the order of paying? Has to be the invoicing, has to be a proper, uh, billing mechanism has to do be an event. Can it can it be asynchronous? That does it has to be synchronous? Do you need do you really need a transaction? So all those things go in the mix when you are moving away from microservices because on the micro uh, sorry on the monolith um, everything is running at the same time probably and then you have this big transaction for when someone is buying um, but when you strike that and you have a lot of business logic and you, then you have tons of microservices going, are going out of there. So, um, so yeah, for, I mean, from those, for those that are starting to migrate, uh, take a step back and look into really which uh, uh, the responsibilities of each of the services you create. Uh, because maybe you can even, you can think of them beforehand, but um, that's, that's, uh, that's a plan and we know that plans do not survive uh, going into reality, right? So you have your plan, you, then you open the chest and boom. <laughs> so you need kind of a, a guideline you can follow. Uh, yeah, I think that I, I joined very much what Eduardo was, was saying from that perspective in terms of uh, really moving it over. One of the things that I was uh, but where there, that I don't necessarily agree with that was said earlier was I think Elnar, um, where where you were talking about that you inevitably have to rebuild your entire system um, if you move from a monolith to a microservices architecture. I'd say that's probably at least in my experience that's a that's a mistake we've made way too often, where the scoping, as as Eduardo was putting it, is is really important, but it's important in both ways. It has to be um, defined enough and clear enough so that the service operates on its own, but it also has to be small enough that uh, you don't take the, the, the big kind of release party risk, right? Where everything goes live on the same day and you inevitably will have missed something that it is not doing um, simply because the task is so big. Um, one of the patterns that we've followed a lot kind of as we, even just as a microservices ends up growing and growing and growing, and then you decompose it into different microservices and so on, is 
basically first kind of building out an adapter, uh, funneling back its own services, and then writing, uh, rewriting them one by one until you have a full microservice that operates on its own, and only then flipping the switch um, at that point in time to, to really let it handle it uh, itself completely. But um, yeah, the, I, I would suggest that you can rewrite a monolith into microservices whilst actually while staying up, whilst keeping your existing system. And then over time, you you will end up with a, a, a different architecture. Now, I completely agree that that has a toll in terms of the timing that you take. So it is you're, you're trading off the um, the robustness of what you're building with the speed at which you're able to operate, I would say. Yeah, one of uh, one of one of the challenges that uh, that we're facing now uh, in in this migration uh, process is um, is really splitting up the database. So you know the biggest part of the monolith is the database itself, and we have the structural information there, which you do want to have in the relational uh, kind of setup. Uh, then you don't you have the operational part of the database where you're storing all, all the events, everything that's happening is as as your product is working, and then you have the analytics uh, and the analytical part of it, uh, where you need to analyze data, but you want to also experiment with it and so on. So um, a lot of it, you know, you don't want to store in the same uh, in in the same um structural uh setup you want to denormalize uh you want another engine uh to use it and um and splitting that up is 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 really a challenge because um you know you have to really basically almost uh run multiple databases in parallel and keep them updated uh continuously at the same time while you're then migrating some of your services into this new database setup um, and then once the migration is over, then you, uh, you know, kind of flip the switch to, to enable uh, it running fully over the other database, which becomes the, the primary one. And the other one becomes like a secondary backup that you keep running for a while and then you gradually phase it up, uh, phase it out. Um, and, and there's, you know, it's, it's maybe easy said, but uh, in, in reality, it, it, uh, it's, it's quite complicated, particularly because um, a, you know, it does it does require resources. Uh, B, uh, you're kind of losing this uh, synchronicity of the database. It all comes down to the kind of eventual uh, synchronization between the databases, um, and you know, that's, you you then have to put special uh, special uh, pieces of of the architecture in place to to cope with that and and make it robust against uh, maybe some parts of the data not being immediately synchronized. Um, so that's kind of, uh, you know, one of the pains that we're going through. One thing I wanted to add that basically to what owner said, all is right. I mean, you can try to minimize the efforts by employing such as uh, such technology, such as CQRS and front and then uh, use event sourcing to persist your database caches, for example, right? But uh, you really need to plan ahead the time that one, uh, microservice part will take you to implement because imagine that there is a product requirement that needs to be pushed just right now in the next week and you'll end up implementing this twice and it will be a very hard uh, possibly to maintain two implementations in parallel and then making sure that they were thinking sync so yeah one thing to think about is 
having a very solid uh, automation testing base on your APIs and your flows and so on and so forth and start investing from the very beginning into that. On this note, uh, this is something we've been trying very hard to, to do as well, to specifically avoid the rebuild and instead make sure that we iterate on, on the core products. So essentially the, the process we're going through is that we identify um, a part of the application that we, we think we can kind of isolate. Uh, and the, the first step is of course to, to make sure that we have proper integration tests in place so that we know that we're not messing up the, the public interface. And then it's the first step after that is we make sure that we maintain the same database structure, even though we are moving it from the central database. Because then once we have uh, the exact same system running on a separate database with our test passing, then we can then start uh, messing with the internals and, and optimizing that. But I think if we were to rebuild entirely from, from, from scratch or like a second system, the, the complexity of our application would just mean that we would miss out on, on some of the, the business logic that's in there through many years of knowledge. Yeah, um, I just want to clarify, I didn't uh, mean to kind of uh, suggest that, uh, that that's the right approach. It's, it's, I was rather saying that if you let it uh, last for too long, then the technical depths grow so much that it becomes almost a mission impossible to uh, build it apart. Um, and and you, you just want to make sure that you don't miss that, uh, that, that point. Yeah, and I think Sorry. we probably did go a little too far in uh, too much technical depth. So basically, that's uh, I, I, point I don't of think return, right? no one, no one is. I don't think nobody is able to not go too far in the technical debt. We all see it coming, but we can't do anything to avoid it. I always say that the engineering is kind of like a boat. You do want to turn left, but that's not going to turn left right away. It's going to take a little while. It's kind of like slowly. You see the iceberg, but you know you're still going to crash. So you prepare yourself as much as you can for the crash. Uh, on that note. Uh, I would say that one of the, the advices I would give to any startup that is trying to think about this situation of going from a monolithic into a microservices, uh, two, for me, very important points that is timing. So know your strengths, know your team, understand the vision, the end vision, understand at least have a, an idea of how do you see those end service, uh, just microservices going uh, what's your plan in one and a half years? How do you see your business units or, or your departments or your product being separated? And the second thing I think is incredibly important with microservices is monitoring. Um, and on that note, uh, of course, monitoring is essential for microservices. Otherwise, you don't even know what went wrong, what blew up, what didn't blow up. And many times finding out who spoke to who uh, is kind of a detective job. That will take like a half a day to a developer. That's never good. Uh, they should be able to find the right information pretty quick. Um, and on that note, I leave with what's probably the, uh, what most of you are going to be against me, but I do not truly believe that microservices have to have encapsulated databases. I do believe in a shared databases as well as, as, um, as long as it's well defined into its context, each one of the tables. I do not see that importance of uh, communicating two interfaces alone. Not saying you cannot do it, but I'm not saying that I don't, I don't believe that it's a thumb rule that you have to do it, otherwise it's not a microservice.
What do you guys think on that? Well, <clears throat> uh, from our side, we do not only we don't do not share the database. We do not only share um, APIs within microservices. So we basically have uh, um, a couple of uh, orchestrators that we call that they actually need to call other services to do their work, but are just a couple. So we we rely on uh, the eventual consistency and um, what today is called, I think, is um, um, Oh, forgot the name. Sorry. So yeah, every every microservice has a kind of a copy of um, of the data, and they have the view they need of that data. So we have replicated the information several times, and um, we don't care about the eventual consistency because uh, it's a couple of seconds, and then uh, the information is going to be where it needs to be, and that gives you all that flexibility that you need, so you don't have these. Uh, how how uh, was called like a, a heroic um, deploy where everything has to be has to be there because then else is going to to, to go wrong. So um, I think that uh, one one of the benefits of microservices is that the fact that by not sharing APIs or um, or databases schemas, uh, you don't have to coordinate with the re the other microservices using that schema. I think that's one of the benefits. That so, I don't really agree on share, on sharing um, the database. For me, it's kind of an anti-pattern if you are doing microservices, uh, because you lose uh, almost um, all the benefits there. If you are using uh, an SQL or or even a, a MongoDB, you know, uh, because if you change a field and you remove it, then the, the other software is waiting for it. Then you have a you have an issue. Yeah, I would agree overall, although there, there are always exceptions to the rules. I'd say kind of overall, you, the default should be a microservice should be as self-dependent as possible without ever needing um, anything else. Now, and then there are some exceptions to the rule where you really don't want to be duplicating your data, but that's more the exception than the, than the rule for me. Can I have a quick poll here? So I see that Eduardo is very much into it. Microsoft has his own encapsulated database, and I understand his point, and he's making me think. Uh, I hope not too much. Uh, I guess Joshua is a little bit with me, like there is exceptions. Uh, how many? That's a, different, that's a different question. What about the rest of you guys? What do you guys think? Uh, I will. Um, yeah, sure. Um, for us, there's not much uh, we can share between the services when it comes to databases, mostly because um, the services are owned by separate teams. Um, and you don't want to be put in a situation where, for example, service A gets uh, spammed by some customer. They, they, they cause quite a lot of load on the database um, at 2 a.m. on Friday night. Um, but they share the database with team B um, and the team B has slightly tighter latency requirements. So team A doesn't get woken up at night, but team B does. And it's not their fault because their service is running okay. So in this case, we need a fairly strong uh, separation between the databases. Um, however, like in general, like I'm not a big fan of sharing uh, databases between services, but you know there are different levels of, of isolation. And 
some of our services that we have uh, within an individual team, they might share the same RDS instances, for example, or a physical database, but they're going to use separate, uh, you know, relational databases within that, that kind of RDS instance. They might use separate tables, but as long as there's a clear ownership of, of that service, that database, it's, it's kind of okay. I think yeah, isolation yeah. is, uh, I think isolation is the right word, but you can achieve isolation by many ways, by code or by ownership, through by code is always better, but um, Martin uh, or Elder, what do you guys think? Someone from my side, this is gonna be a long next six months. We, we try very, very hard to make sure we have isolation on a data layer as well. Um, it, it makes things much easier when it comes to both organizations, uh, management and uh, deployments and performance. It, it helps. Um, I would say though, it's very, very application specific, but as far as possible, we always try to separate out. Well, I'll, I'll um, add from my side is that uh, uh, definitely for separation, um, you know, now, now having the challenges where the analytics team is scared to run their analytics because they're afraid to kill the server uh, that, uh, you know, some other services are dependent on, um, you know, th that type of scenario. Um, and, and that happens between multiple teams, not just the analytic teams. Uh, also the deployment, you know, one team wants to introduce a new feature and the other one says, no, 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 that's going to kill uh, our part of the product. Um, so uh, definitely think, uh, you know, ideally the services should, should be independent uh, on the data layer, but um, that's within reason, right? So if you, if you don't have any good reason for making that separation, then why complicate things for yourself um, and, and for, the, for, the, you know, for the team? So uh, basically you need, to, you need to see where, where it makes sense and, and apply it uh, correctly, but don't go wild in absolutely separating everything out there whether you need it or not. We'll see. We'll see how wild we'll get. Um, okay, that uh, definitely gave me a lot to think on my side. I think uh, we are pretty much close. Uh, thank you, everyone. Thanks, Paulo. Right. And thanks to our audience at Facebook Live for uh, watching us live. And those of you that are watching the recording, thank you for watching this episode of Scale Up Heroes. Special thanks to all of our panelists. You guys were great. Visit our website at scaleupacademy.io. You can learn more about us and what we do. And if you find these live shows valuable, we hope that you'll hit that like button and share today's show. And join us every Monday for a new episode of Scale Up Heroes. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks. Bye, guys. Thanks, everyone.